Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, the Conservatives may move to force a vote on a proposed anti-corruption committee. The Conservatives' motion that is there on the table, if it was to be debated tomorrow, would send a clear message that there is no confidence in the government. So that would trigger an election. We'll see. The federal government vows to uphold the rights of Mi'kmaq lobster fishers in Nova Scotia. The acts of violence we have seen in the past days and weeks are disgusting, unacceptable, and racist in nature. It is a disgrace to see these threats and acts of intimidation and violence take place in this country. And the Prime Minister believes Canada is in a good position to handle the second wave. The fact is that the second wave has the potential to hit people really hard. So we're going to keep stepping up to help. It's Tuesday, October 20th. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by Susan Delacourt, columnist for the Toronto Star. Susan, thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. Happy Tuesday, Mark. So it has the potential to be an interesting day. The Conservatives may force a vote on this proposed anti-corruption committee that they have been promoting now for some time, and the Liberals are talking about making it a confidence vote. And, of course, that has everyone talking about the prospect of a snap election resulting from this. Uh, Given that nobody wants an election, it seems, (laughs) it looks like that's (laughs) unlikely, but there is a bit of brinksmanship going on here, isn't there? Yeah, I was going to use the phrase game of chicken, but I think it's, it's it's a very busy day on Parliament Hill. Uh, a lot going on. This would ha- happens after you take um, a week away, and everybody has all this pent up stuff that they want to talk about. And uh, the Conservatives are trying to push the issue today with this special super anti corruption committee as well, which the Liberals Liberals it seems don't have an objection to setting up some kind of super committee. I think what they're objecting to is the branding, as uh, I've heard at least one conservative call it. And the idea is that I think um, we are, even though we, we nobody's triggered a snap election, this is about an election. This is, uh, this is everybody uh, lining up their, uh, their various resources and uh, and slogans and uh, and tactics to fight the next election whenever that comes. So the Conservatives are uh, Aaron O'Toole will be holding a press conference this morning to explain this this uh, motion that they're putting forward to set up this super committee. But it's not Aaron O'Toole we'll be watching. We'll be watching Blanchette, I think, who is also scheduled to speak, and Jagmeet Singh on whether they're going to support the Conservatives in all of this. And support from both of them would trigger an election, which you're right, nobody wants. Yeah, and as you say, it is it is not so much about having an election immediately as framing things for whenever there is an election, right? That it's That's about, exactly the word I was using, yeah. <laughs> looking for, yes. Yeah, so it's it's about the narrative that each side is trying to, to establish before the next election, uh, and clearly the Conservatives don't want the uh, ethical lapses of the the current government to be uh, long forgotten by the time we go to the polls. No, and it's interesting. I wrote about this today for the Star. I, I, I think everybody is saying because they're in safe liberal writings, but we actually do have uh, two elections coming up in the next week. Uh, next Monday, two Toronto ridings uh, go to the polls. Uh, to elect replacements for two Liberal MPs, pretty 
one of very safe liberal writing, Bill Morneau's old writing, and Michael Levitt then in New York Center as well. Um, I, I think what, what voters outside uh, the Ottawa bubble don't know is, is that all the parties use by-elections to test drive various uh, slogans, tactics, um, techniques that they're going to use in a general election. And so some of what we're seeing in the House of Commons right now is intended for the audiences there in Toronto in those ridings. And every one of the party leaders has a lot riding on this, including the new Green Party leader, who's actually fighting for Bill Morneau's old seat. So I think we're, we're seeing... Uh, things line up for, yes, a distant election too, but uh, as I wrote this morning too, don't ignore those Toronto by-elections. They are going to be party strategists, party analysts are going to be pouring through the numbers in those ridings. And how to have an election, for example, during a pandemic is is one of the things. But they there will be signals in there that will inform things, maybe even more than the signals we're getting today on Parliament Hill. All right, let's turn to the fishery dispute in Nova Scotia. The federal government now is saying it will uphold the rights of Mi'kmaq lobster fishers, and uh, Mark Miller, the Indigenous minister, spoke about that yesterday. Where, do, where does this stand now, and what really is at stake here? You know, people may be experiencing a little case of deja vu with all of this uh, this latest dispute, because it almost feels like a bookend to the big national crisis we had just before the pandemic hit, which were the blockades through most of, uh, across rail lines across Canada through most of February. And this issue is is about the fishery, yes, and uh, and the dispute between Mi'kmaq fishers and their constitutional rights as they see it, and the commercial fishers out there too. But the larger issue is the way that Indigenous and non-Indigenous interests, economic interests, are getting polarized in this country. And it's like we pressed pause in March on this polarization, but we're going to see it come up again. This is an I, no matter how this is settled, this is a, a sign that we have unfinished business for in, in Indigenous terms. They believe it's 200 plus years of unfinished business to settle. For, um, but speaking just in the strange year of 2020, this is unfinished business very much so, I, I believe, from the beginning of the year. The, the rhetoric is the same. The, the lines being drawn are the same. And the accusations against the government, uh, look, you've gone too far on reconciliation and not far enough on, um, on understanding sort of what reconciliation does economically to interests of the country. Those same arguments are out there. And I, I don't... I, I think this is a chapter in a story and not just a story in itself. How do you see this playing out and and what options are at the government's disposal to try to resolve this dispute? Oh, it is such a complicated issue because uh, as you and I know and everybody who's covered the Constitution knows, settling this is, is, uh, is not easy. And I think I think there's a chance that it'll be settled by courts or the police or politics or a mixture of all three of those things. Politics seems inadequate usually to these debates. It forces people 
to the edges. I think what you're going to see from the government, as we saw during the blockades earlier this year, is they're going to propose a talking solution. Uh, more talks, more talks, more talks. Uh, I don't know that that's going to settle it completely. I think there will be courts and legal um, intervention in this as well, too. But anybody who thinks that there's a simple solution to this would be wrong. All right, let's turn to the coronavirus pandemic. The prime minister is saying that he thinks Canada is in a good position to handle a second wave and has more tools and resources at its disposal than the fir- than during the first wave. Um, what's your sense of, of how this second wave is playing out? And I know there, there are many different jurisdictions at play here from municipal to provincial to federal, but uh, what about the federal government's readiness for what is playing out as a second wave across the country? Well, I actually think the federal government may it may have more tools. It is true. We have a lot more public education now. We have masks. We have the tools, contact tracing to target and localize where these outbreaks are happening. Um, what the harder decision and what is harder for the federal government is the fact that it now has to make choices. And every time you make a choice, you're going to annoy people. And I think the biggest thing in all of this is morale that that, that um, I was just reading before we talked here about some polling on um, on Canadians' mental health. And that's too clinical. I think the a term for I think the second wave is has got people tired, frustrated, uh, angry, anxious about how long this is going to last and the damage of it and. That's the federal government's real challenge is how are you going to to rally people to deal with the second wave and all these tools when you've got people tired and angry and and lashing out? And that's uh, it's going to be I, I, I predict immeasurably harder to handle the second wave than it was the first one, too. But uh, People may be reassured by the idea that we don't we're not going into a massive lockdown again, but the prospect of it hanging out there is I think weighing heavily on on everything. Yeah. No question. All right, Susan, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Mark. That's Susan Delacourt, columnist for the Toronto Star. Under the Supreme Court's Marshall decision, the Mi'kmaq have a constitutionally protected right to fish in pursuit of a moderate livelihood. We will continue to uphold that right. Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. In the Globe and Mail, Donald Savoie argues that resolving Nova Scotia's fishery conflict will require inviting both sides to the negotiating table. Savoie writes, Boiled down to its essence, the debate is about trust in an age of precarity. Indigenous people do not trust government for good and obvious reasons. Non-Indigenous fishermen do not trust government because most never have. What is needed, urgently, is a venue for the two sides to meet and sort out their differences. Announcing a decision from the top and then hoping that somehow it will work out is no way to build trust. At National News Watch, Andrew Jackson argues against Pierre Poilievre's accusations against the Bank of Canada. Jackson writes, The conservative finance critic is not known for subtlety. But his recent attack on the Bank of Canada barely counts as rational, even among right-wing pundits. 
It is fair game to debate the merits of current monetary policy, but Poiliev provided not a shred of evidence that the Bank of Canada is driven by motives of political partisanship or has been instructed to act in a particular way by the federal Liberal government. At Policy Options, Heather Bushy argues economic inequality made the U.S. more vulnerable to the pandemic. Bushy writes, It's no surprise that the pandemic hit the United States harder than nearly any other country. The U.S. grimly boasts one of the highest death rates from COVID-19. And especially hard hit are the most vulnerable in society, the elderly, low-income people, and people of color. The coronavirus continues to lay bare deep fragilities in the U.S. economy and society, steeped in vast inequalities. Now, here's what's coming up on Canada's political agenda. The parliamentary budget officer will be producing a costing today, dealing with the government's new medical assistance in dying legislation. CPAC's Martin Stringer has more. Mark, the parliamentary budget officer has been asked by a senator to look into the cost and to cost out the new regime which will exist if and when Parliament passes Bill C-7. That's the bill which makes changes to the current medical assistance in dying legislation. The budget officer has been asked to evaluate the cost to the government and to the Canadian healthcare system of the new regime. Now, one of the biggest changes that C7 makes over the existing legislation is that it would remove the requirement that someone's death must be reasonably foreseeable for them to be able to request medical help in dying. That condition, that someone's death must be reasonably foreseeable, was struck down as unconstitutional by the Quebec courts, and that's why the new legislation is currently before Parliament. So the Parliamentary Budget Officer has been asked to put a price tag to determine whether the changes in the new legislation constitute more or less of a cost to Canada's healthcare system. That's an interesting twist into a debate which until now has largely been one about ethics and compassion. Thanks, Martin. Also today, the Prime Minister will be joined by Finance Minister Christia Freeland, Small Business Minister Mary Ng, and health officials to speak with the media about the latest COVID-19 developments. And Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole will speak with the media in Ottawa about his party's Opposition Day motion. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Tuesday, October 20th. Tune into Primetime Politics tonight on CPAC for coverage of all the day's events. Our podcast returns tomorrow morning. Have a great day.